What lady is that which doth enrich the hand of yonder knight? Next Chapter Podcast presents the play on podcast series, Romeo and Juliet. She doth teach the torches to burn bright. With original songs and music in a made-for-the-soundstage podcast. From Cupid's quiver, courage, I'll Have not saints' lips and holy palmers, too. Translated into modern English verse by Hansel Jung. I, pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer. Hear Shakespeare's tragedy about two star-crossed lovers as you've never imagined it before. You kiss by the book. Adapted from the acclaimed Nat Cohen Two River Theater production. Can I move forward when all my heart is here? Go to playonpodcast.com to learn more. And remember, violent delights have violent ends. Hi there. Welcome back. I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. And I'm Felice Bell. You're listening to Borrowed, stories that start at the library. Well, we moved here um, the year we got married. I you came in, first in September by yourself. 1980 to prepare the apartment for you because we were getting married in October. Kim and Scott started a family in Greenpoint, which is a historically Polish community in Brooklyn. To this day, it has one of the largest concentrations of Polish people outside of Poland. But it's also one of the most industrial neighborhoods of New York City. And in the 1980s, it became impossible for Kim and Scott to ignore their environment because of the smell. Rainy days would would be sad days because of what happened at the incinerator and the treatment plant. The overflow, it would upset the entire treatment plant. So this horrible, sickening aroma would come wafting down the block and also beautiful sunny days when there was this wonderful wind this breeze that you always want a nor the nor'easter where the wind comes out of the northeast those would be sad days for me because we were in downwind of the incinerator and as we learned about more about what was coming out of the incinerator uh, i realized that as kim put laundry out on our laundry line that uh, cancer-causing dioxin was, was uh, raining down on our laundry. And in the morning uh, on our car, we would sweep off the uh, dioxin ash off of the car. It was the sewage treatment plant and the garbage incinerator, both located near Kim and Scott's home, that brought these terrible smells and toxic ash. Because of their experience, Kim and Scott were part of one of the earliest environmental groups in Greenpoint called GASP, Greenpoint Against Smell and Pollution. Today, thanks to their efforts and several lawsuits that we're going to get into, Greenpoint doesn't smell anymore. The neighborhood is seeing new construction, new parks, and young people moving in, contributing to the gentrification that's happening all across our borough. Greenpoint is changing, and even while things are moving forward, it's important to remember where we've been. That's where the public library comes in. Because like any library, public libraries have a mission to keep information alive, to save the past so that future generations can understand where they came from. So today we're going to be exploring the idea of archiving. It's a big and important question for libraries. How do you preserve the past? Particularly in the case of Kim and Scott, when the past might be something as hard to capture as a smell. We'll come back to the interesting story of Greenpoint, but let's back up a bit and talk about archives. The best place to start is a climate-controlled room on the second floor of Brooklyn's Central Library. I think I'll just turn off 
That's the sound of a dehumidifier being switched off. Diana Bowers-Smith is an archivist at Brooklyn Public Library, and she's standing in a small windowless room at the back of a small windowless office. Diana works in the Brooklyn Collection, the place where most of Brooklyn Public Library's archives are kept. We collect anything and everything to do with Brooklyn and Brooklyn history. So what we have here is not just books, but also prints, maps, manuscripts, letters, photographs, everything you could think of basically. These materials are kept in this small room with the buzzing dehumidifier because they are really old. And the tricky thing is that all of the items that Diana just mentioned, photographs, letters, newspapers, film, they all need slightly different conditions to survive. Temperature and humidity is a big deal when it comes to preserving um, sensitive media. And this is the only space we have that's even close to climate controlled. So for example, we have our 16 millimeter film collection um, stored in these cabinets. Um, We also have some photo collections stored in here. Notably, um, a large chunk of the Brooklyn Eagle photograph is stored here. But the archive at Brooklyn Public Library is a lot larger than that one tiny room can hold. Because in 1957, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle gave its entire archive, clippings, photographs, and newspapers to the library. This is such an important archive for Brooklyn because the Brooklyn Daily Eagle was the borough's paper of record for 114 years, dating back to, in fact, when Brooklyn was its own city. And it published stories pretty much every day from 1841 until the Eagle closed its doors in 1955. The archive can tell us so much about what Brooklyn used to look like and what it used to care about. And it's all stored in the basement of Central Library. We seem to be spending a lot of time in basements, Krissa. Librarians love our basements. And this part of the basement sounds particularly creepy. It's called the morgue, which is what newspapers used to call their file rooms, where reporters would keep old clippings of the paper. I'll let Diana give you the tour. So the cabinets that are sort of lining the center of the room here, These are the clippings from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Um, um, Let me open up a drawer and show you. So um, this is basically what you're gonna see when you open a a drawer rather. Um, The clippings are placed in these envelopes with the subject typed on the outside and then the clipping is kind of folded up in that envelope. Sometimes um, they're also glued to index cards. So two things that archivists hate, folding and adhesive. Um, Really bad for any kind of paper, but especially newsprint because it's thin and it's acidic. So even in the best of conditions, newsprint's going to deteriorate. It's going to turn brown. It's going to get brittle and crumble. I'll open a different drawer just so you can get a better sense of... Diana pulls open a drawer full of graying folders of photographs. The tops of the folders are completely covered in dust. So the folders are ripped, they're dirty, um, the photos in them are kind of all over the place, dirty and rough shape. It takes a lot of work to maintain an archive like this, and when the newspaper clippings came to Brooklyn Library, there wasn't a lot of attention paid to how best to preserve this paper. That's why you have the adhesive and folding. The staff at the Brooklyn Collection is working on updating the storage so that the paper can survive as long as possible. 
And thankfully, a lot of this archive is now online. The entire Brooklyn Daily Eagle has been scanned, so you can do a keyword search and get decades of Brooklyn history on our website. Diana and her colleagues at the Brooklyn Collection are constantly collecting and archiving current local stories. The new challenge is how to preserve information that hasn't been printed on paper at all. So Brooklyn has had a thriving blogosphere for 15, 20 years. The height of it was probably around 2004. Unfortunately, a lot of those really popular blogs from that era have already disappeared from the web. But we're doing our best to save um, what's left from earlier blogs and also blogs that are current now. There is a lot of talk about how this era in history will be, for future historians, a bit of a black hole because we're producing so much more data than we ever have before, and we're also losing data at unprecedented rates. In November of 2017, two local news websites in New York City, Gothamist and DNA Info, disappeared from the web. The owner decided to shut down the websites, and just like that, thousands of local stories were gone. No one could access the content online. It just goes to show you how ephemeral any kind of story can be. Thankfully, a lot of the articles published on those two news sites were archived. And today, Gothamist is actually back up and running, and New York is better for it. Meanwhile, Brooklyn Public Library continues to scour the web for the important documents of our time. And once we find them, we make sure we're saving them. When you archive a website, you use a tool called a crawler to save a static version of the website. So the web is changing all the time, but this way you can kind of freeze the site the way it is on a certain day. And then that's just a file that you can open in a browser Whether you have an internet connection or not, whether or not the site is still on the live web, that file is still going to be viewable. Okay, so we've covered how to collect and preserve old newspapers, old film and photographs, and old websites. But Krissa, what if the story isn't written down at all? What if you want to remember the way a place felt or how it smelled? And this is where we come back to Greenpoint, because the library is working on another really interesting archiving project there. To get a better sense of the importance of the neighborhood, we talked to a local historian. I think we could make a claim that Greenpoint might be the smelliest place in New York, right? We have a long history of bad odors. That's Jeff Cobb, a Greenpoint resident and historian who recently led a walking tour one windy day in Greenpoint. The bad odors weren't Greenpoint's fault. In the mid-1800s, Greenpoint became a center for industry. The Erie Canal had just been built, which connected New York City to the Midwest by water, and factories were opening up on the waterfront in Brooklyn. It was heavy industry that brought the overwhelming smell to Greenpointers. Greenpoint's natural environment was radically changed by factories. It wasn't just the odors in the air, but the creatures in the water, too. If you can imagine this, in 1609, when Henry Hudson first discovers New York, there are about 220,000 acres of oyster beds. Uh, there's an estimate that there's well over a billion oysters right, in, the New York, uh, in New York City Bay. As, as Greenpoint industrializes, right, they, destroy, they destroy the water that the oysters live in, right, and right, By by the 1870s, oysters are are just a memory. 
Soon Greenpoint saw the five black arts move into the neighborhood. The black arts are industries that are known to be heavy polluters, printing, glassmaking, porcelain, metallurgy. And then the most destructive industry, which comes in 1867, oil refining. You can't tell the modern story of Greenpoint without talking about oil refining. In 1919, 35 tanks of oil, naphtha, and other chemicals caught on fire. Residents and firefighters were injured as the fire burned for hours. People lined up on the street to watch the 70-foot plume of black smoke. Then, in 1950, part of the street exploded, shooting dozens of sewer covers three stories into the air. Three people were injured, and a 10-foot section of sidewalk was ripped apart. Residents of Greenpoint who were around in the 1950s remember the explosion. No one knew it at the time, but it was one of the first indications that something was very wrong underneath their feet. It wasn't until 1978 that the Coast Guard discovered gasoline in Newtown Creek, a plume of it leaking into the waterway that separates Queens from Brooklyn. A massive underground oil spill in Brooklyn may be far worse than anyone knew. The spill happened in Greenpoint, possibly at the turn of the 20th century. Tanks owned by ExxonMobil leak millions of gallons of oil into the soil and water there. The at first, it was estimated to be a 17 million gallon spill. But by 2007, the EPA cautioned that there could have been as many as 30 million gallons of oil that leaked into the land and water over the span of about 140 years. And cleanup of a spill that massive was slow. By 1990, an agreement was reached to have ExxonMobil remediate the toxic site. But still, activists and residents became frustrated with the lack of action by the oil company. And the process is still ongoing. The New York Department of Environmental Conservation guesses that it'll take at least another 10 years to clean up the site. But it is slowly getting better. Jeff Cobb says that Greenpoint is greener these days, thanks to community action and environmental remediation. So when we first moved here, which was in the early 1990s, if you can imagine this, we were completely cut off from our waterfront. So one of the, the good things that's happened is that we've gotten two parks. So we're beginning to, to reclaim the waterfront, uh, so en environmental questions are really, really on the front burner now. In 2010, New York State and ExxonMobil reached a settlement, of which $19.5 million will go to funding community projects to make up for the environmental disaster that the oil company caused. And part of that funding is going to a new public library building. Greenpoint's branch is being rebuilt right now, and it's set to open in the coming months. One thing that's going to be part of that new library is a new archive. And it's going to be pretty different from the archives that are here in the basement at Central. A large part of this archive is going to be oral histories. Here are some clips from longtime Greenpoint residents. First, Bill Salzman, then Michael Leantonio, Mary Corba, Rose Giordano, and Jeffrey Hiller. Uh, I think the word to describe Greenpoint maybe back in the 1950s was gray. No one thought about the environment uh, back in the day. Uh, no one thought about, you know, clean water, uh, clean air, anything of that nature. The bridges which, you know, sur uh, you know surround uh, Greenpoint, the Williamsburg Bridge, they would clean them and paint them all the time. And of course, that's all lead paint. So that would be all over, you know, Greenpoint. 
There was a lot of health issues that I was aware of growing up. Lots of women had breast cancer. People they say, you know, Greenpoint was the cancer capital of the, of the nation. I never knew that to be true because back in the day, you know, if you had cancer, uh, you never told anybody. The average person in this neighborhood at that time worked for either Domino Sugar, the pencil factory, or Levitons. Well, now the Newtown Creek is finally clean enough that birds go in it, but you should have smelt it years ago. The odor was horrendous. I worked in what they call New York Progressive Woodheel Company. <laughs> they made heels for high for women's shoes. I had to just dip in the ink or whatever it was. And you know the, the lift on the heel? I just had to go make it a color that would go with the shoe, you know. All my life I lived here. The neighborhood has changed a lot. I went to see the house where I was born at and saw that it was not there anymore. That is now a new high-rise building. We want to be the last old-school business. While all these towers go, <laughs> go up around us, we will continue to have used clothing here. How glamorous. Greenpoint helped provide service for the city in a lot of different ways through waste transfer, through creating kerosene, like so many things have happened in this neighborhood. And a lot of the times these things are forgotten. That last voice is Acacia Thompson, the outreach archivist in charge of collecting oral histories about Greenpoint's environmental past. There has been intense environmental inequity in the neighborhood. It is an typically in a neighborhood of immigrants for a long time. And the city and industrial pollution, they've treated the, the neighborhood in such a way that the, the neighborhood has, is paying for the sins of, of the past. Acacia's archive also captures something else, the emergence of the environmental movement seen through a local lens. Laura Hoffman is a Greenpoint resident and a member of the New Town Creek Alliance, one of the environmental groups that emerged in the late 1990s. She talked about what it was like to see a movement emerge around her during the first meeting of the Alliance. I know as a community member, I felt broken, sick. My family was sick. I felt desperate. Um, and at that meeting, it was like it was a ray of hope. We found ourselves just getting a crash course in environment, environmental uh, problems because we learned that the playground was surrounded by uh, um, a PVC manufacturer, a polluted creek. Another activist from the neighborhood, Christine Holovich, contributed her memories to the archive. She's been living in Greenpoint since 1972, when she emigrated there from Poland. And she remembers when Greenpoint was home to a lot of heavy industry. The city decided that because it's an immigrant neighborhood, we can dump everything. So you have the largest sewer treatment plant, you have all these transfer stations here. So uh, it really bothered me that these people are working very hard. They've made this their, you know, their home. Not only their home, but they also, um, I don't know if you can understand that, but everybody at that time who came from Poland uh, had family in Poland, and Poland was really communistic, and they had nothing over there. So you would scrunch these dolls, and you would also share with your family in Poland, so you made them better as well. 
So people were working very hard, and I felt that they were really abused. And, you know, we had the largest plumage, you know, the oil. I mean, that's basically how you, you know, right now we're sitting together, and, and the money that comes to this is basically from that, right? This oral history archive project is part of the Greenpoint Community Environmental Fund, which was created by the state and funded with money from the ExxonMobil settlement in 2010. That settlement came from the same lawsuit that the Newtown Creek Alliance worked on. History is coming full circle. And all of these stories will become a part of Brooklyn Public Library's huge oral history collection called Our Streets, Our Stories. Anyone will be able to access all these stories and more because they'll become a part of the library's archive for the whole community to listen to and remember. If all goes according to plan, the land under Greenpoint won't remember its past. The soil will be restored after all the oil is removed. The air will forget the smell of sewage and toxic ash. And the water will forget the chemicals that once killed off all the oysters. Right, but we have to remember Greenpoint's past and preserve the memory of it. It matters to the residents, it matters to their kids and grandkids, and it matters for the future of the neighborhood. I honestly think Greenpoint is a case study for change in you know, trying to turn back the clock of, of what had happened with industrialized pollution and, and righting all those wrongs now. You know. you know, just making the connections and understanding people's experience better, I think makes you a better neighbor. That's it for this segment of Borrowed. But keep listening because librarian Alexandra Wilder is going to be recommending books about archiving and environmental history in our Bookmatch segment. I am Alexandra Wilder, and I'm an adult librarian with the Brooklyn Public Library. So when I was selecting books for this list, uh, I was thinking both about uh, the work of archivists, um, as well as, uh, I guess, the product of what can you do through making use of an archive. First up is a novel called The Archivist by Martha Cooley. In the book, T.S. Eliot's letters are sealed by bequest um, until 2019, and then there's a young researcher who wants to access the letters. And so that's something that a lot of archivists have to deal with, um, where they'll uh, ha have a collection that isn't supposed to be uh, accessed until a certain time or, or can only be accessed by certain people. And it can be a challenge because really archivists, like librarians, want collections to be open and accessible. Um, and then the second book that I included is called Pen to Paper, Artists' Handwritten Letters from the Smithsonian's Archives of American Art. And I worked briefly at the University of Pennsylvania's Kislak Center, which is their special collections library. So I worked with a lot of letters, um, which can be really interesting because you're dealing with, you know, the intricate details of people's lives and um, trying to decipher their handwriting, which can be very challenging. Um, but most of the letters in this collection are, are very beautiful because the artists are, are writing them and they include some archival photographs of the artists as well so it's a really neat um, volume that I thought would be neat to include here. And then I included a book here that's a little bit of a wild card. It's called A Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller Jr. 
and it is kind of a lesser known science fiction classic though it did win the 1961 Hugo Award for best novel which is the biggest kind of science fiction award that that there is but it was the only novel published by Miller in his lifetime so in the book there's a monk who is doing uh, replicas of these ancient documents that they're trying to preserve. And so there's just this funny inside joke sort of thing that happens in the book where the monk is traveling and he's carrying one of the copies that he's made of this ancient document and he, you know, gets stopped by like a roadside bandit who ends up stealing it, who thinks it's the original and it's really the copy, but so because the monk has done all of this work in, in making this copy, he's actually done something to like save and preserve the original. Um, and then the last book that I included here is called uh, Gowanus, uh, Brooklyn's Curious Canal. So the author, Joseph Alexiou, actually made use of the Brooklyn Collections archives, and he thanks them in the acknowledgments, which is really nice. And I think he made extensive use of the Brooklyn Eagle, and I just thought it was a great example of, of what, um, what is possible when you kind of dive into an archive and, and, and research history and, and all of the different resources that we have here in Brooklyn for that. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library. You can find a transcript of this episode on our website, brooklynlibrary.org backslash podcasts, as well as a link to the bookmatch list right there on the webpage. Borrowed is produced and written by Virginia Marshall, with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Meryl Friedman, and Robin Lester Kenton. Our music composer is Billy Libby. We are recording this from Central Library's Information Commons recording studio. And guess what? If you have a BPL library card, you can reserve time here for free and make your own podcast. Visit our website to find out how. That's brooklynlibrary.org. B-K-L-Y-N library.org. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Hey, Bard listeners, if you live in New York City and love the public library, we need your help. This past fall, our public libraries sustained deep mid-year cuts that forced an end of seven-day service and reduction of our materials and programs. We're now facing more budget cuts for the coming fiscal year. Libraries across the city stand to lose $58.3 million in funding. If these cuts are not reversed, we may have to reduce materials and programming yet again, including further reductions to our days of service. As many as half of all New York City libraries would be open only five days a week. The good news is you can help. Send a letter to city leaders telling them that you support the library. It's easy. It only takes 30 seconds and you can do it now. If you live in Brooklyn, go to BKLYNlibrary.org slash standup, all one word, to fill out the form. If you live in any of the other boroughs, you can send a letter on behalf of Queens Public Library or New York Public Library. Learn how at investinlibraries.org. Thank you so much for your support.